And there's a lot of history there and some of the best growers, I know there's indigenous growers that have grown for millennia, but this movement came straight out of Paris between 1650 and 1850. Small skinny beds, intensive planting, which you can only get away with the intensive planting if you create a deep living soil and cover your soil at all time. So we've got no bare soil on the farm ever. It's always got a living plant or a cover. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. Alright, very exciting. Jody Roebuck from Roebuck Farm on the Quorum Sense podcast. Jody, can you go ahead and introduce yourself please? Morning, Jono. Thanks for having us. I uh, love Quorum Sense's work. So my name's Jody Roebuck. Uh, we live 10 minutes south of New Plymouth. It's where I grew up. And I grew up surfing, uh, did design out of school for four years, didn't go into that industry, went straight into commercial orchard work for four years. And then I guess the big change for me in about 2000 was did a two-year apprenticeship at Koanga Institute, growing heritage vegetable seed using methods developed by a farmer called John Jevons in North California. And then I spent a year with him in 2003 or seven months while my wife was pregnant. Um, we're pretty full power. We, do, we don't do things by halves. Um, and it's all, all the little bits over the time that have really added up to you know where the farm is at the moment. Uh, so we brought seven acres of beer land in 2004. We've got an open valley with a river boundary. And the valley floor was, they cut the topsoil off in 1975. We knew this. We're on a very compact uh, mountain ash subsoil with no organic matter. And the first 10 years of farming here, we were no input. And we're growing, doing a lot of cover cropping and growing heritage vegetable seed. Never had any business sense. And so I've never got to a point where I was marketing any of that. And fast forward, got really interested in the animal systems. We'll, we'll cover that today and started grazing uh, our place and all the neighboring places uh, with sheep and transitioned my diet from vegetarian to pretty much Western A price. Uh, and then about six years ago, we transformed the seed production into a market garden, built the infrastructures appropriate to that and begun direct marketing fast vegetables or vegetables that grow fast uh, into New Plymouth. So fast forward, we're in our sixth season and we've heavily reinvested in, in the business. Last season, we turned over 250,000 off 1,100 square metres of bed space. That's a tenth of a hectare. We do fast salad mix. We do fast root vegetables. In summer, we do the longer season stuff like cucumbers and tomatoes. They're really at what I call add-on income. We've got a lot of support. Mum and dad help on Saturdays. Uh, my wife drives the business. She works off farm teaching fine art. Soon she'll be on the farm full time. Yeah, I guess we've been taking the long, slow approach and we work really hard in relationships with our outlets. Jody, tell me about, I want to hear about your diet choice. What was shifting factor? What had you go from being vegetarian to not? Well, I guess it was, you know, all, all the farmers out there listening will laugh, but when we brought the seven acres, I kind of thought it was you know, I was going in deep. In terms of vegetable production, that's an insane amount of land. And obviously we weren't able to manage all of it. And we just started with um, three ewes and a sheep. 
And I was working off farm at the time, working for an architect. And one of, one of his young Māori uh, building apprentices, um, I was having morning tea with him. And he said, I said, oh, I just got three years in a ram. And he says to me, soon you have 20. And I was like, 20? And I uh, just really got, really got into the animal systems. I was being paid to travel the world teaching gardening. And that was really where I was able to work on farms, you know, through some of the driest drier parts of the world, a lot, lot of work in Australia through Victoria, New South Wales, North California, and spent a lot of time with graziers, uh, did a lot of work with Joel Salatin, courses like with Ian Mitchell Innes, and got you know inspired by the likes of Greg Judy, Darren Doherty, who's a you know, farm designer. Yeah, just although it wasn't a, we're not at a scale with the sheep that was profitable, we kind of started grazing uh, my first course with Joel Salatin kind of took on the concept of leasing land and yeah, we've probably grazed a dozen leases over the years. Some I've got one lease I've had for 10 years. I uh, went from three years to 120. It was really, the change was not uh, me feeling like, you know, there's no change with me. It was really what our land provided for us. And the, so the sheep for us were firstly land management. Then I got really focused on my, uh, breeding. I've got a good friend who's got a mobile shearing uh, business and he has 20 leases with 300 ewes on there and a rent-a-ram business. He also does calf dehorning and fencing. His whole business model's on other people's land. And so, you know, I get the choice of ram off him each year and just really saw the improvements with the breeding with the sheep, uh, which I'd kind of been doing in the past with, you know, growing heritage vegetables through to seed and saving the seed. So just got fascinated with the grazing systems um, and then slowly upskilled with the butchery at home, nose to tail diet. Yeah, just making up for all those years of not eating meat now, Jono. Tell me about the journey traveling. What was some of your biggest, you mentioned some big names here. What was some of the key earnings in, in, in your travels so far, Jody? With the grazing side of things, I guess it was that this is 2012, I guess, for me, I'm, I'm really big on this, uh, that regenerative agriculture is decades old in places like the US and it's come straight out of, of grazing, mob grazing, you know, high density, regular moves, bit more grass on, bit more height in your pasture, focusing on the residuals, whether it's a daily move or uh, ultra high density, you know, multiple moves a day, you just really see the positive impact. Although, um, you know, we're not at the scale for it to be the profitable part of our business. I've been grazing in places no one else would even consider. A lot of my leases were fenceless, so I'm using just electrics for sheep. Pretty much doing a daily move for the last 10 years. We're running it a bit more simple now, but just seeing the benefits. Um, we've got 16 species in our pasture. We've never drilled any seed, never used any fertiliser, haven't fed hay or supplements for 10 years. The biggest challenge for me with, the, with this grazing model was... Uh, how do I get more sheep to keep up with the amount of grass we had ahead of ourselves? The grazing's very well, low input, and just really, you know, once we once we took on some leases that nobody else was even prepared to graze, we saw the transformation of the pasture from what looked like a monoculture rye into you know sixteen species, a lot of broadleaf clovers, and just saw especially the ewes that they they could do really well and. Uh, and conditions that were we were starting off on that weren't you know that weren't the best and so we, we're doing the improvements with the ewes seeing that we could you know fatten lambs on uh, really the work that the ewes had done for them so I think 
uh, one takeaway from all my travels, and I've done a lot of work with dry stock beef, is you can't push a lamb or a calf into marginal conditions. Um, you've really got to be pushing them f forward fast onto you know better better conditions. But the ewes are, or the the older animals are a really great tool for managing and improving your landscape. Do your ewes come onto the market garden part of the farm at all, Jody? Initially, they'll come onto areas that we're about to develop, and I'll talk about you know the expansion of the market garden and different options. But now they don't. We've deepened our soils. We've got high infiltration on our. Put in a lot of organic matter, which most of it we've made ourselves. So no, the sheep don't come into the market garden as part of the rotation. But last year we expanded two blocks of new beds, well garden beds, but we hadn't formed the beds, so we we don't need the area. We do a lot of cover cropping, and last year what's the word? A few farmers made comments that we feed our ewes too much. And my response to that is that we are consistent with their feed. And then we just handbrake their feed two weeks before lambing. We have no um, lambing issues with extra large lambs or anything. And so last couple of seasons, we've cover cropped areas for winter. We had 13 species in there last year. This year, I'm actually going to go less. I'm focusing more on the crops, um, the grains like oats, rye, wheat, barley. And... The, just before lambing for two weeks, we because we know our lambing date based on when the ram goes in, the ram's in for 40 days. We are lambing later than we used to, say 10 years ago. We used to lamb on the shortest day, and I would prefer to do that. It's more more work managing the sheep during winter just by you know tighter, tighter more regular moves to bank grass ahead of ourselves. These days, we're lambing uh, from early September. It works with the market garden easier. And so we're lambing a bit later and yeah, we were cutting the cover crop and feeding it out uh, on the other side of the fence. So they utilized all of it. And, you know, we're so basically we park the ewes right by the market garden so we can keep our eye on them as they start lambing. And then, then we separate the lambs and the mums out onto what we call our lambing paddocks. And until everyone's lambed, which is a, a 40 day window and then the mobs, you know, rejoined again. So we've done lots of different styles with the grazing. At the moment, we're just keeping it pretty simple. But like um, recently, Ian Mitchellinus came to New Zealand and comment I really enjoyed from him was, uh, nowhere in nature do animals wean. And I thought, well, true that. And so that season, we, we didn't wean the lambs, um, but we focused on moving them ahead quicker. Uh, you know, we focused on the lamb production uh, with our moves this year. Not sure what we'll do, but um, the so yeah, no, short answer is no, the, the sheep are separate from the market garden. At points, we've done super high density moves on like a 90 day recovery period in summer that used to be our normal. And you, there is, you know, if you've got a lot of feed that you're going into in a small area with 100 ewes, there is a lot of manure in there to pick up if you want it for the market garden. But I would rather leave that there for the pasture improvement and bring in inputs to the garden, like we bring in organic composted chicken manure. We're getting a custom compost made now by Ozflow. Um, so now the systems are quite quite separate. Let's dive into the market garden side of the business. Talk us through the journey from it being something that you're passionate about to being something that's profitable. Yeah, well, that was the kind of the last, uh, the missing leg on the stall was, you know, the financial aspect to it and yeah now our numbers are you know pretty good so 
again, work with the t so many farmers around the world and still do. There's something to learn off everyone. About six years ago, two Canadian market gardeners toured the world. One is called Jean-Martin Fortier, the market gardener. And his, his numbers on the home farm, he's in Quebec, very short growing season, deep winter, snow. His numbers were acre and a half of production, $150,000 turnover. And 10 years ago, those numbers were pretty good. And uh, so JM toured, toured New Zealand. When we still were in seed production at that time. Uh, we hosted him here on the farm, along with Curtis Stone, the urban farmer. And Curtis has been a major influence on a lot of the market garden growers worldwide. And he's really the first person to capture a lot of information look at where where is the finance and so he talks one of our the biggest things we track on the farmers we call it dtm or days to maturity it's very similar to your grazing plan where you you know how many days recovery till you come back on year round so we're constantly tracking how long our fast crops are taking and in short they take two and a half times longer in winter these are for our fast year-round crops so like baby mustard we cut it so small, it's not hot. In summer, it's we direct seed or drill it. It's 17 days to harvest, and in winter, it's 45 days. So it's pretty pretty simple planning tool. We track the days to maturity. We track the volumes coming off a bed. Because it takes two and a half times longer to grow in winter, we grow two and a half times the area of it. And our sales with the fast veg in retail and restaurant are the same every week of the year. So we have to be consistent. We can't have our fridges and retail empty. We, we can't tell our restaurants, oh, it will be another three weeks. So they just, you know, they'll go somewhere else. So yeah, track, tracking DTM is something that really came from Curtis Stone. And in short, I'm really big on this one. The faster the crops grow, the more profitable they are. And so, you know, there's lots of ways to measure your production and your income. The classic first two are our garden beds uh, happen to be 10 square metres. Uh, they're all 75 centimetres wide, 14 metres long. We're tracking what comes off a bed, and that's pretty much just eyeballing, like, do we get six crates of carrots? Do we get four beds, four crates of baby mizuna, and so on? And as long as we're pulling $400 off a bed every harvest, four times a year per bed, we know the business is on, on track to hit our financials for the end of the year. So we'd, I, haven't got any, I haven't got a spreadsheet. I probably should. Uh, but because we don't grow all the crops under the sun, we're growing the ones that are profitable for us and that we have a market stream for. So, you know, you've got your area, your production per area, and then you've got your product, your income per kilogram. But then we look at that and we divide it by days to maturity. So if let's say you get 12 kilograms of mustard off a bed in summer, you can do that in 17 days. And in winter, you can do the same in 45 days divide your income by your days to maturity. And that's really intriguing when you start looking at crop, you know, which are the crops that are at the top of the list um, measuring by income per day. That's a big part of what drives consistency. I'll, I'll talk about other things there with consistency too, but that's, that's what drives us being able to supply year round, even during winter with three metres of rain last year, uh, very little photosynthesis in summer. Uh, lots of big, we're in the roaring 40s, lots of big winds as well. We've really got to work around the weather. The fast crop, tracking the DTMs, that's all stuff that came from Curtis Stone. And although he was in Kelowna, 
farming on urban leases. In his eighth season, he turned over 120,000 on third of an acre. And those numbers are pretty staggering. If you can scale that, ideally doing that on one site, direct marketing everything yourself, there's, there's potential to you know actually make a livelihood. And I'm not saying what we're doing is a get rich program. I love farming. Uh, you know, I knock myself out at night with podcasts and reading market garden and grazing books. You know, you can't take the farming out of the farmer. So that was the big change for us, really, with Curtis's work. Uh, and I, I went and worked on their farms and came home. And we expanded the garden area, built uh, some greenhouses and also a wash and pack, which is wash and pack is 40% of your work on a conventional, what I call, say you're a CSA, a, a veggie box market garden, growing a lot of diversity. Your DTM is long on those crops your your 40 percent of your work is post-harvest so we're we're possibly 50 percent when we're like in winter we're doing more volumes of salad and just fast root veg we're doing less variety really so yeah, we're really invested in our systems our wash and pack irrigation and also you know toyota manufacturing their lean principles we joke we've got the most most wheels in the world per half acre we're trying to work smarter, not harder, continually making improvements. What are some of the other costs outside of wash and pack and just growing of the vegetables in the market garden? It is a little underestimated, your setup costs. You know, there's a general consensus that um, there's a low endpoint entry here. But especially if you're in a you know marginal climate, for us it's rain and wind. It's really your setups. You know, your first couple of years, you can look at not taking an income if you're, if you're serious about your uh, investments. So wash and pack is a serious investment. Our wash and pack tool shed and the outdoor washroom is probably, with, and there's a greenhouse on the front of that. So the wash and pack is, it's not that big, but it's very functional. Our wash and pack, we've probably built for 50 grand. We've actually just concreted access up to it and extended the roof line. We've doubled our outdoor washroom area where we wash root veg, bunch stuff and clean vegetable containers. Uh, greenhouses, we've built high, high wind design greenhouses. They're not cheap. Uh, irrigation, once that's up and running, it's yours. We've probably spent 15 grand on irrigation. The small tools, we've got no tractor, not even a walk line tractor. We've just got hand tools. And that sounds... Um, <laughs> What's the word Joel Salatin calls? Uh, we're not Luddites. Um, the, we've got some pretty sophisticated tools and we've doubled up on them. We've got multiples of them. So the whole farm is driven by battery drills. Uh, we have greens harvesters. It's basically a knife that runs on the front of the harvester run by a battery drill and it's got a cloth catcher on the back. So we can cut, you know, 10 square metres of direct seeded baby salad in seven minutes. And we've got... Um, some baby plows that's called a tilfer. It's like uh, 40 centimetres wide. It's got handlebars on it and the drill activates that. So that does the surface cultivation or mixing in at the surface of compost and amendments. We have four precision seeders, just like you have on you know, large scale behind a tractor, but we've just got baby versions of them. So we have a, a six row seeder. We do a, a salad with that. We have a five-row jang. We do pretty much all our root vegetables with that one. And we have another, one other tool, uh, which is actually 40 years old. It's from Japan and it's called the paper pot transplanter. Basically that automatically 
transplants, your transplants. And I know there's larger scale systems, you know, tractor based, um, they're just same thing, but miniature. So once the setup's in place, the real big running cost is labor. And we're, trying, we're doing more production each year for less labor. That's just working on our systems, our decision making, and also the tools and the R&D, uh, tracking our crops, understanding how can we market them better uh, to increase our sales. And also we're really big on increasing, uh, trying to find ways to present our produce to last longer. And so we're really big on if we can market a crop for two and a half weeks, well, that's a big game changer for us. Like coriander's good in the fridge for two weeks. Basil doesn't like being in the fridge at all. So that's a, basil's a real challenge for us. We don't, we don't market it. Kind of coming back to, you know, running costs. The biggest cost for the farm outside of labor is seeds. And especially because we're doing fast crops and we're drilling, we're doing a lot of stuff at high density. I'd like to come, come back to that one. Like I just brought 40 kilograms of um, radish and peas this week. Uh, I buy a, a kilogram of carrots. We, we're really big on working with the market garden supply companies. That's where the breeding work's been done. They've got great customer service. A kilogram of carrot seed is 1400 bucks. That lasts us the whole season. And, you know, we're pulling four to $800 off 10 square meters. Pays for itself quick. You mentioned amendments uh, what are some of the some of the inputs that you're that you're making on farm um for your market gardens can you talk us through some of those sure so we it's only the last five years we started using more amendments and before that we've just always made our own compost we still do so um jules matthews i hope you're not listening we, Jules has done us a, a huge amount of soil tests and we, we have some great recommendations from Jules to implement and that's kind of our next frontier is you know fertility but we so currently we're using a lot of homemade compost we're using humates we couldn't grow beetroot we've added boron and now we're, now beetroots are just pumping uh, we use a bit of blood and bone we use a bit of biochar we use a bit of organic composted chicken manure. And we've also just found a company from Hamilton that are delivering us bulk worm castings as well. So we've just been using that one for the last two months. Um, so yeah, the inputs, you know, on top of the seed, that's probably our next cost is the inputs. It's not, you know, per bed, you're talking, it's not, it's not big money, especially when you look at the crop performance and if you can lift your production on the same area well, it's a bit of a no-brainer compared to expanding coming back to that I'll, I'd like to talk a bit about COVID um, later in the show I'm really big on this idea that it's not get big or get out we've doubled our income since first COVID and we've done that on the same land area the other thing we've got a lot of in our propagation house we've got a lot of small tools for direct seeding into trays instead of you know manually planting one seed at a time by hand we also, this is super low tech, we made a compost sifter. Not just, We don't sift all our compost for the field, but we, we make all our own seed raising mix and that's probably worth 10 grand a year to us. We direct seed a lot in the field, but the stuff that we do transplant, we grow all of that ourselves. That probably saves us another five to 10 grand. And so just by doing our own propagation, making our own seed raising mix, combine that together and that's pretty much half a wage for an employee. Currently, I run the farm myself, one employee, 
Tanya, my wife, drives the business. She does all our communication. We have an insane amount of communication. She runs all the ticketing, our website, invoicing, tax, GST, all of that stuff. And straight up, the farm wouldn't be what it is without Tanya upskilling. We're currently 1,100 square metres of bed space. That doesn't include paths. Plus, we've got a 30 square metre greenhouse solely for microgreens. We supply four retail stores, six to 10 restaurants, um, and that's all into New Plymouth, which is 10 kilometres away. Uh, We harvest and deliver at least twice a week. In winter, it's quite often three times a week, and we just maximise our sales through our fridge space. I do all the deliveries and rotation of crops. There's a ton of um, working. I'm really... My kind of thinking is that business is about relationships. We, we work real hard on the relationships with the businesses that we work with. So we we have an independent fishery called Egmont Seafoods. We have our own fridge in there. We know we need to be complementary and convenient for our customer base. So you can go to the fish shop to get fresh fish. And in our fridge, especially in the summer, you can, buy our, you can buy a veggie box. There's no box, so you're just choosing what you want. It's right in front of you. Um, and then we're at Independent Butchery called TLC Meats, same deal, we've got our own fridge, we're at Vitro Mediterranean Supermarket. Coming into the first COVID, we were full power, probably turning over 170,000, 180,000 then. Everything stopped day one of the first COVID. We'd been harvesting 14 days straight to queues of people in our retail stores and then everything was shut down. Day five of COVID, we started supplying Pack and Save New Plymouth, which is locally owned. That was, uh, that's been awesome. It's kind of our quiet protest against the food system. We really want to see all styles of, of local production, quality food, small, you know, local business in front of everyone, which is in the supermarket space. And we started at Pack and Save with our own fridge. They said to us, they were great. They said, oh, invoice us whenever you want. You know, we said, oh, we do monthlies. Uh, end of the month, we invoice them for 12 grand and they'd freaked out. They were like, you guys are going to have to invoice us weekly because you've just blown out the produce um, stats for the department for the month. So that was a, a big hell year. Yeah, we're really we're doing a lot of coaching of other small farms and helping them get into the retail space and supermarket space too. And they're saying the same thing with COVID. They just wouldn't be in business if it wasn't for going into the, into the retail um, space. And so real quickly, retail for us, we run uh, our terms and conditions are... Uh, um, is sale or return so we take all the risk our, our stores are not buying anything off us they're just on selling so it's my job to to stock the fridge rotate the fridge and manage it so that there's no returns and that gives them no risk and we know we're drawing in new customer bases for them as well um, so they're working on they were all working on a 15 percent margin and to be honest it, it couldn't be much higher otherwise we'd there's not, there's not a lot of money in growing vegetables. You've got to really adjust your thinking. And so going into that first COVID, the days are getting shorter. Everything's taking twice as long to grow. And we really were like, how are we going to, how are we going to get through winter with pack and save on board? Pretty much doubled our retail. Uh, and the crops are now taking twice as long to grow. And we've been now two years at pack and save on the same growing space, 1,100 square metres. Uh, and yeah, we still jumped from 170, 180 to 250 on the same area. And we just knuckled down on fast crops, made improvements in the wash and pack. You know, we're constantly making improvements in our systems 
And sometimes they're little ones. Sometimes they're really obvious things that take, you know, you've got to do something 10,000 times before you realize, oh, what if we do this? And uh, it works better and it's quicker and it's more efficient. Retail's been the making of the business uh, with the with Market Garden. What is it that you're doing to appeal to these companies? And what do you think it does for the consumer seeing you guys in there? A couple of things that come to mind. First, we, we don't use any uh, terminology in our branding. We don't say we're organic. We don't say we're no-till. We don't say we're regenerative. We don't say we're nutrient-dense. If we say anything, we say we grow food like your granny used to. We pretty much, once people taste, if, and I kind of rewind, what, what the large scale cannot do is quality same-day harvest and delivery. There's no food miles on our food. And so, you know, our, our food's coming out of the field. It's grown well. It's coming out of the field before any heat fatigue. It goes through a real clean wash and pack system. We've got a stainless steel jacuzzi to wash our salad in. Um, we wash and dry, mix salad, uh, all in a, a, a wash and pack that's um, everything's insulated, uh, lots of lighting, lots of trolleys and wheels. So we're, we're efficient with it. So we're like, to, it's Sunday today, tomorrow's Monday. We'll be harvesting in the morning and by two o'clock we'll be in our retail stores. So the food speaks for itself, the freshness. I would like to see hydroponics. I'd like to see a mandate out that everything that's grown hydroponically is labeled that way. I don't think it is. I could be wrong, but basically the food sells itself and just being in front of people again, it's got that optionality or the, the, you know, the, the fact you can go to a store and buy our full range and get quality meats or, or quality fish in, in the same place. We, as we saw COVID um, increase, our restaurants really struggled, if not closed, and our sales and retail really lifted. And that, to us, that meant people are eating at home again. They're not going to the restaurant. And, you know, you, if you go to our retail stores, you can buy everything that our restaurants buy. They, they, they shop at the independent butchery they shop at the independent fishery for their uh you know supply for the restaurant so you've got a uh, good quality food coming straight home that's that's fresh and the storage is you know our salad lasts up to two weeks i, th- I think also getting into these stores um this might sound again left field but what a real big influence on me um farm planner educator um darren doherty his business handle is regrarians I've uh, done a lot of study with Darren and that really holistic management framework really got me thinking about, you know, sounds cheesy, but thinking of things in holes. And Darren said to me years ago, something that really stuck and has rung true to us because he's busy. He, he was traveling the world third of the year, no, sorry, three quarters of the year, traveling, designing farms, delivering education. And I said to him, you know, how does that work for you? Just how, how do you, I know you've got a big brand, but how do you just do so much work with so much production? And he said to me, mate, we just go, we were invited. And I just, something really true in that. So every store we supply, every restaurant, every opportunity that has come to the business, like we were on country calendar four years ago and people are like, oh, you know, how long did you have to ring them to get on the show? And I was like, no, it's not how we work. We go, we, we like Darren's suggested, we go, we were invited. Every retail store, every restaurant have come to us there's something in that the only store that we supply that we approached i took my time with that it was um tlc meats independent butchery i went into the store wearing my roebuck farm t-shirt and tony's got a 
kind of an island in the middle of the store where he he's breaking down beef and lamb and he can you know talk with his customers tony saw me and he said g'day mate i, I saw your country calendar show i really liked it and how's this he goes you know what your your meat would be better than what we can get and i was you know i was like shit that's so like, i've got a new mate here thanks tony brought a ton of meat off him left and then a week later i went back with this new you know he's now kind of a new friend and that's when i approached and said hey you know we supply at a fish store this is our t's and c's would you be interested two days later we started supplying them we've been there three and a half years now uh we there's something in that when we first started we went around town surprised all the restaurants gave them free samples created a fresh list which is a, a, a list what we currently have available and we could we could see that the restaurants were opening these emails some of them were looking at them six times a day nobody ever ordered one item ever so we dropped the fresh list which is a challenge with for, for me anyway our whole market stream has is people that have come come to us so yeah the there's there's a huge huge uh, opportunity for creating uh, for for local project product to be marketed locally tlc meats and uh, one of our restaurants um, social kitchen they're both asking us you know can you supply us lamb and i'm like well we're not at that scale i don't really want to send them to wanganui and back but if i took on some more leases scaled the sheep we could put all of our all, all of our sheep or ideally hog it uh, into tlc meats or through uh, social kitchen and but again it's not um we prefer to eat it on the farm and and content, hold on to our breeders but the it's the it's the fast crops that really make make us our our turnover in in, in a little amount of days and I try not to devastate you here Jono, but our microgreen production uh we've got that system set up super lean but a, a tray of microgreens so four trays of microgreens we can grow them in six days in summer. They're seventy dollars plus just a kilogram. So you, uh, you four trays of microgreens with the yield that comes off them. You're looking at the same money as a prime lamb going to the works. Uh, I really don't like that. <laughs> six days. Six days. Yeah. And you know you do, so again you divide that income by six, and and that gives you a, a, a you know that gives you turnover per day. Uh, and then in winter, the microgreens take twice as long. They're, they're 12 days. It's still super fast. So what the fast crops do for us is they really allow us, they give us a buffer because we've, we, we've got to supply. We've got to have our fridges full. We've got to supply our restaurant. They have first, um, first choice on you know, uh, our products. And if we can see something's going to be short in the field, for next harvest or two weeks away, it might be lettuce, it might be baby mizuna. We can just double up on our microgreen production. And we just had probably the toughest six months growing I've ever seen. Uh, we had a super wet winter, super wet spring up till Christmas. And then it went super hot and dry for five weeks. And we're on free draining soil and it's, all, it's always windy. So things dry out super quick. Then we've got 425 mils of rain in 30 hours followed by a couple of hot days, another 100 mil of rain. We only had two, two rains this summer. And then the second rain a month, a month later, we had 175 mils in nine hours uh, and devastating big southeasterly winds like 
uh, other growers I know lost greenhouses and that second weather event we lost first time ever um, and this is peak summer we lost 14 beds of salad which is you know I've just got my calculator this is conservative numbers but we lost six grand of salad possibly 10 uh, and we had it was just I mean no no baby leaf can handle half a meter of rain during its 17 days of growth it's just slaughtered so we kept but long story this short we doubled up on our super fast crops we still had fast successions coming through and we had about eight days where we didn't have our field salad mix but we just increased the microgreen volumes and kept, you know worst scenario still kept all of our fridges full so that's really part of the thinking with our production is the faster the crops grow, the more money you make each day, but also the more you can get back on when mother nature's pretty nasty. And kind of following in from that, the, we're, we're really big on building in optionality with uh, everything we produce and how we market it. And this, this stuff's pretty simple, but the, we specialize in salad mix uh, both our both our salad mixes, we won uh, gold medals at the Outstanding Food Producer Awards for. So, like when you get a bottle of wine with your gold sticker on it, we have to put a gold sticker on every salad that leaves the farm. So, it's always the same ingredients, but based on what the field gives us each harvest, we can have different ratios. So, once our restaurant orders go out for single item salads or mixed salads, we then look at how many tubs of salad we have left. And what ratios of the two mixes that we do are we going to put out across retail? And that really, really helps us with our consistency. There might be more lettuce in there, there might be less, more, more Mizuno or less. It's always the same ingredients, um, but there's always variation in it. And that's really what's helped us, um, along with the fast crops, keep, keep our consistency. In the last couple of years, we've also applied that thinking to our root vegetable production. And, you know, our customers are busy everyone's got a busy life you're out shopping uh you know with they're not stupid but we've we've got some pretty simple marketing tricks uh that have worked well for us like we uh, we grow a little white tokyo turnip and not that popular by itself but if we put it in a mix uh sells like hotcakes so we've got a what we now call the robot roasties and we can have three of any item in there but it could be a, a red onion a, a baby carrot a beetroot uh, a tokyo turnip or a radish and just because we named it robot roasties it kind of they know it's our product but they're, they're like oh dude you roast it and we're now selling you know every turnip we grow every beetroot we grow just just through changing the name really and a, kind of continuing on with that theme uh, our microgreen uh, salad mix is called rainbow mix and it has a baby red radish microgreen a baby green radish microgreen and our pea shoots that we grow in the field i'd like to talk about them in a minute that is a hit across town like my kind of measure of its success is my cousin buys it and my dairy farm friends buy it and people uh got to know our our, our mixes and they just mad dog on them like they just about pushed me out the way to get fresh product when I'm stocking fridges and anyways when we started supplying pack and save our rainbow mix just didn't sell not a single bag and I I was stunned because it's 
so popular. Two weeks later, we didn't have enough pea shoots to put in that mix. And so we changed the name and it was because they were now straight radish microgreens. We changed the label to radish microgreens. Sold 70 bags first day. I put them in the, in the fridge at Pack and Safe. People obviously identify with that, that word microgreens. So marketing's a big thing. And sometimes it's just little changes that really allow you to uh, you know, increase your sales. And, you know, never, I'll never say never, like last year we sold about $20 of spring onions. This year we sold about five grand worth of spring onions. It's all about putting them through retail and how we present them. Uh, that that is really gives you the uh, potential to sell them. And also it just takes time. You know, we're four years been at Egmont Seafoods and our sales keep increasing. And what I can also hear, Jody, is, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse as to the market interests or directions with the fast turnover of crops. Is that an added benefit in being able to chop and change based on your observations in the markets? Sure, although it's pretty consistent with our two salad mixes, but yeah, when the weather's not on your side, you can, you can bounce back. Like let's say we're planning for a normal week and then a chef rings with a big catering event for 500, short notice, and he wants $1,400 of salad and 600 bucks of carrots. Well, that's going to clean you out a bit. But if he gives you six days notice, uh, the microgreens especially, you can plant to that order. You know that they're taking six days or seven or whatever it is, and you can just increase your volumes. That's pointless growing it if you can't sell it. And I'm really, really big on that one. But yeah, again, it just gives you flexibility or what, what we like to call optionality. Pretty much with our decision-making, we look at, uh, will we grow this? Uh, and if, it, if we don't have options, we just don't go there. And then we're measuring, you know, what's the income per day from it? Uh, and that's where things like zucchinis, uh, they, go down, they go down on the bottom of the list. Tell me about, is there much wastage? And if, well, I'm sure, I know you, you, like me, there is no such thing as waste in nature, but what, you're a market gardener, there's bound to be stuff that doesn't all go to market. What is the wastage like and what do you do with it? Because we, again, this optionality, we have multiple outlets, uh, four retail stores, six plus restaurants. It gives us options. So let's say one restaurant, first delivery for the week, one restaurant doesn't need an order. That can go into retail. As I go across retail, I just stock my fridges accordingly. I know the different shopping habits at each of the retail stores. If I have returned to say it's day, I usually pull my salad out on day six, although it's good for 14 days. If I have returns at a store, I, I give them, firstly, I give them to the store owners. Like Egmont Seafood's got 26 staff. If I give them root veg and salad or a tomato, well, they give us fish. And so I basically feed our people in retail. And then also I call it throwing vegetables at people. I call past my mum's house in town. Her neighbor's got a boat. I throw my return vegetables on their front doorstep. When he's been fishing, we get the phone call. Uh, every store that I purchase at across town, whether it's the packaging store, uh, ITM, building materials, we're always building something on the farm. Wherever I shop, uh, I, I, put, I give my access to those people too. And, you know, they, uh, all, all our products are branded. They, they have dinner with the neighbours and the neighbours are like, oh, I like that, where do you get that? And it, it, it comes back, it turns into new sales. I'd just like to talk about one quick measure we have. Um, 
and then I'll come, I'd like to continue on that, uh, you know, eliminating waste concept. The, because the crops are fast, we're growing, growing to our capacity and we can increase that as our market space demands that. We're looking at taking on New World, New Plymouth, and we know we'll probably do that in spring if it lines up. Um, we know we can do more production from the same area. We want to do more of the crops we currently do, not expand and diversify. Well, we've got a, an acre and a quarter, acre and a half here. Potentially, I can see we could go 220 beds, let's say, times four crops a year, times $400. There's 352,000 turnover, plus we could be doing 100,000 turnover of micros. So there's you know, close to half a million turnover on just under an acre. I, I really believe we could do that into New Plymouth without having to go far afield. We're not going to expand and grow more until we've got the market stream for it. And it's the, the fast crops, um, the mix concept, the optionality uh, and, and people. There's a couple of weeks of the year where, you know, you can't plan for retail sales. Sometimes, sometimes I load up our fridge and it's smashed in 24 hours. And the, the thing with the fast crops is your next succession is always right there. Like at Pack and Save, I've, I basically make friends with everyone on all our retail. You know, we feed them. Pack and Save photograph my fridge every morning and send me the picture. So I can tell if I need to be there like now or if I can go the following day. And if your fridge can get smashed in 24 hours or it can take half a week for the stock to get low. So we're really big on keep, keeping them stocked. So I've kind of got this, um, this measure We've got all our systems in place, harvest, everything's on wheels, trucks loaded, everything's in its right place. You know, invoices are already written. We're 10, 10 Ks out in New Plymouth. On average, I'm delivering $1,000 of product an hour. So that's going to four retail stores, six restaurants, return, you know, two and a half hours delivery. We're putting out two and a half thousand. A three hour delivery, it's 3,000. And those numbers might sound, you know, like a, a we're getting loaded, but the, those numbers need to be like that to run the business. You know, you're paying ACC, GST, tax, running costs, wages, everything. People are talking a lot about turnover, but nobody's talking about what are their profit margins. And even in the market garden space, people talking about, you know, people making some big claims without measuring it. They're not talking about the viability of it, which is the numbers. And it's not all about numbers. You know, we, you've got to improve your soil and look after it. And you can't have it run down the bank. But if the numbers aren't there, there's no longevity. I don't know where this saying came from, but Darren Doherty said it to me years ago. He says, mate, you can't be green if you're in the red. And I was like, hell yeah, I really, I, I really get that. So I'd like to quickly talk about a cover crop that we're doing. Uh, it's the fastest cover crop we've got. And it's also the most profitable field crop. So it's um, pea shoots. We soak the peas. We do no bed prep of any kind and we spread the peas out on top of the top of the garden bed. The bed needs to be flat. We water the peas and then we put down plywood and super heavy weights on top and we force germinate them. We take the take the weights off once they've germinated, we cover it with a shade net so the birds don't eat it. And in summer they grow in 12 days. And in winter they take 23 days. And the pea shoots, we don't sell a lot of them as a single item, restaurants buy some as a garnish, but the pea shoots go in both of our salad mixes. You, you'll appreciate these numbers. We're, we're drilling them at uh, one ton per hectare. They're $54 plus GST a kilogram, a kilogram of seed, which costs five, five bucks. We get 1.8 kg on a good yield, we get 1.8 kg of pea shoots. So this is without just 
uh, $54 a kg times 1.8. You're looking at $97 plus GST uh, of three quarters of a square meter in 12 days. By the time the P is, is about 10 centimeters, 15 centimeters high, you've just got an insane amount of organic matter in the soil. So we harvest it, market it. That's the only cover crop we're doing now at the end of our crop rotation, which we're pretty flexible about. I don't really want to talk too much about crop rotation other than uh, your crop rotation, you know, it's all about the soil, but it's totally driven by your market stream. There is no best practice crop rotation. It's all about managing your soil as well as you can with marketing everything you produce. So there is no waste. Yeah, again, it's your uh, market streams that, dr- that really drive that. Yeah, the, for us, the, the P, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, we joke that we're Tyrannicus because P dealers, um, <laughs> I would, I would, we, we absolutely are, and I would never say that on social media, but the pea shoot production is just insane. There's nothing as fast year round or profitable that we know of. And again, it's by, by including it in the mix. Um, so basically it t- tastes like a sugar snack pea year round, uh, but you're growing it constantly in, in, in summer in 12 days. So for this, this crop really for us highlights the, you know, the, where sustainability meets profitability. Um, and I wish I had more crop examples that I could say that it ticks both those boxes. It fascinates me how we Kiwis seem to avoid opportunities to talk about profit. It's almost like this tall poppy thing. Like, oh, you know, we just want to, you know, just cover our costs and, you know, it's not regenerative to be not making a, making a profit. What I'm hearing is a shift in the way that we value our food. So I don't hear you comparing prices with, say, you know, massive, oversimplified, fully automated food production systems because you're not producing the same product. And what would a world look like where food was seen as a way to reduce your, let's say, health costs. So like true, you know, food being valued for the health product that it is and was paid for accordingly. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people head towards good food first after they have a health crisis. And, and you, you know, I know you've, you've seen that too in, in farming. A lot, of, a lot of our leading regenerative farmers weren't born like that. They had an environmental crisis that drove them to be farming regeneratively. Um, Colin Sice, uh, Gabe Brown, classic examples. I think both their farms burnt completely. Uh, Greg Judy talks about having $9 on his checkbook, sold everything off the farm, apart from the dirt, and then began custom grazing, and then grazed, then taking on leases, and now he owns something like seven of his 12 farms. Uh, he's, you know, it's the mindset that had to change. Uh, really, mm. I really like Greg Judy's work, and if you're listening, haven't checked his work out, he's all on YouTube, but he's got two classic books as well. I think to um, kind of coming back to your comment, the, well, firstly, there is so much content written about dry stock, mob stocking beef. There's hundreds of great books. There's about six small-scale market garden books. That's it. Within the market garden movement, you know, I've got my finger on the pulse internationally with it. I listen to all the podcasts that come out, the online courses, the books. I reread them all the time. Same thing. It's not just a New Zealand thing, John. The people are talking about what they're doing, how they do it, but 
across the market garden movement, nobody's talking about the numbers. It's super supportive to understand the numbers and your, your choice of your site, your design, your appropriate tools to your scale and your and the marketing that's relevant too. Maybe they're talking about these different things I've mentioned, but they're not talking about the, the numbers. You know, is it is it viable? 15 acres, it sounds pretty big time of, of market garden production, but 12 employees, running costs, waste, risk, weather. It's pretty easy to see people's um, scale and uh, costs, but quite often you can look at it and, and think, well, that, that actually the numbers sound good when you talk turnover. The numbers aren't so great when you, you talk about what's left after all your running costs. So generally a market garden is 45% margin. And to increase that, you've, I think you've really got to work on your systems, your direct marketing, uh, your optionality, zero waste. You just, you've just got to be efficient. And creative, from what I can hear. Yeah, yeah I think so. And, you know, that probably comes from my arts, my arts background. But, um, yeah, creative and also I think that's, that's a real fair call, Jono, the creative also with your relationships. Like, you know, I made radio a decade ago and I interviewed a ton of farmers from everywhere and they all said very different styles of production, different parts of the world, but they all said similar things. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, if you want something done, Ask someone who's busy. The harder I work, the luckier I am. I can relate to that too. We've got a lot of people that support us on the farm and it's reciprocal. And my neighbor's got a firewood business. He's an ex-triathlete now with a chainsaw and a wood splitter. And he's busy. He, he does it by himself. His dad, who's 84, helps him. And whenever we get slaughtered by the massive southeasterly wind, he's the first guy that rings me. He goes, oh, I'm just out at Okura. Um, chainsawing a tree that's that's um, on my friend's roof. Are you guys okay? Another uh, big wind event. I've, he's, I've seen that he's lost the roof off his firewood storage. He's ringing us to see if we're okay and if we need help. And these are you people. And, I, and if you're going to go farming and you want to be a curmudgeon and, and live in the sticks, that's your choice. But to run a successful business, you, it's, you've got to have people around you and you've got to be find the time to support them too. Like my builder, uh, we share his sheep twice a year. I take his ewes, put them with my ram, drop them back. He doesn't have to do anything but move them on his own paddocks. And I know when he comes over here, we've never got deadlines. If he gets help, held up on a house build, he's waiting for a pre-line inspection or something, he knows he can bring his team here for a day and we're kind of just backup work for him and you know not many builders are happy to build a wash and pack from scratch without architectural plans uh, or build a greenhouse what else has steve built us he's built us a tiny home a little we've got a little shop up on our, our entrance way and so you know it's people like that that we make sure when they need support we're, we're there for them and I really don't like the word busy it's just a massive cop-out and excuse if someone's got to tell you how busy they are they're not the people to ask for support because they're just not coping. Farming is a wow. busy life. So I know you. I know you know that. We're all, you know. That is fascinating. Yeah, busy. Like it's a. It is a cop out, man. That's I've never looked at it like that. You know, it's, and it's one of the first things. So you're busy. Yeah. It's some yeah. measurement of success. <laughs> don't ask a farmer that. It's a situation where everyone can win. There's no winners or losers here. You hear a lot of stories of big corporate entities that there's a common 
it's it's almost like a inherited context that people that work for those big companies it's like this division it's them we work for them there's this resistance and resignation about the job at hand and there's real division it doesn't work for everyone you look at some of the conditions people work in, some of the jobs that people do, you know, surrounded by a lot of the time toxic chemicals and, you know, it's it's really painting a bleak picture. Hearing you share about Roebuck Farm, I just got the sense of like really seeing that it can be a farm that's profitable. Yes, it ripples out into the community. The community is coming back with spades of reciprocity and you know gratitude for it's the whole the community yeah i can say i really enjoy enjoy feeding people and i you know my the first four years i did in conventional orchard work so i I did four four seasons picking strawberries six days a week six month seasons Um, i did stone fruit apples napier nelson super repetitious same 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 and I probably wasn't working my body wise. And, you know, my early 20s, my back was just gone, my lower back. Um, I'm 49 next month. My back's been good 20 years. Partly, I really believe that's diet. Um, and, but also it's just, it's movement. It's how, how you work, taking the hard yakka out of the, uh, out of the hard work, setting up systems. But the farm, we're never doing anything for long. And especially with, uh, our garden beds are small, you know, they're only 10 square metres, but we can flip a bed super quick, which suits the fast crops. You're not picking carrots for 40 hours a week, looking at just, you know, doing the same old, same old, same position. You might pick carrots for an hour and a half, then you're washing them, packaging them, and then you're sowing microgreens, making seed raising mix. Let's go move the sheep. Let's go on deliveries. Let's uh, direct seed some crops. Let's do some propagation. So even though we're not the most diverse in our production by choice, I steer away from what I call long season, low value crops. Our work life is, um, it's pretty diverse given, you know, we don't grow every, every vegetable under the sun. And yeah, I haven't, haven't had a bad back in 20 years. Do you still surf? Yeah, not, I, um, I had more than my fair share growing up, Jono. So yeah, I do. Um, not, not like I used to, uh, but I try for one a week, sometimes two. Yeah. Man, I, just sitting here, I'm just like, I want to come and work on your farm. Well, <laughs> so, do it. It do sounds it. fun. I'll be, I'll be here. Um, <laughs> and, you, know, we, we, you know, the same. The team on the farm is a big part of um, of our influence. You know, we, I've got a lot to manage outside the farm, and I guess I'd like to kind of finish up with a little bit of history and some some numbers. How we're growing is called French intensive market gardening, and there's a lot of history there, and some of the best growers. I know there's indigenous growers that have grown for millennia, but this movement came straight out of Paris between 1650 and 1850. Small skinny beds, intensive planting, which you can only get away with the intensive planting if you create a deep living soil and cover your soil at all time. So we've got no bare soil on the farm ever. It's always got a living plant or a cover. If we direct seed, we irrigate and then place a 70% shade net on the on the germinating crop until it's germinated and if it's a if it's a brassica family uh, or in winter we also put hoops and an insect net over to protect it from driving rains especially when that crop's young or massive winds so we're, we're covering our soil but the numbers so the french intensive market gunners they were doing intercropping intensive planting season extension they didn't have 
Well, I'm pretty sure they didn't have plastic or polytunnels. They had little glass bells that would go over each lettuce. And they didn't have internet or a calculator. That's a great, my favorite farm tool. And they didn't have um, irrigation. They didn't have any of the tools that we've got that run off battery drills. They didn't have wash and pack. But there were two skilled workers to the half acre. And that's still where we sit today. You know, we're about half an acre of production. Two skilled workers absolutely could run this. I don't really have a life outside of farming. No, I do. I have a lot of commitments with um, kind of being a public figure internationally. I, I do a lot of farm design, consults, touring, education. Uh, we also got our sheep. Uh, we do a lot of stuff like podcasts. And so that's all, you know, time where I'm not uh, hands-on on the farm. Dave has been working for us for 12 months now. And he's, he's at a point now also where he can do a lot, lot of the decision-making. Like I'll have a job list. Uh, he knows that as the weather changes or our market space changes or whatever, that um, he knows how to prioritise things just through experience. And we also do take trainees on the farm. That's uh, another big conversation, but we've, like I've got two guys here at the moment for two months and um, Ewan's brought land in Dunedin and he's, he's just chasing it for two months here so that he knows when he hits it at home, what to set up, how to set it up, where to start. And so really quickly, you've got to get some infrastructures in, irrigation, wash and pack, uh, and you've got, to, you've got to start. And But if you start with the fastest crops and begin, you keep your day job and keep begin your market streams, you build your experience up with the fast crops so quick. Uh, like the microgreens, Ewan's here for two months. We plant them twice a week, harvest twice a week. In two months, he's done 16 cycles of harvest, wash and pack market. 16 years doing tomatoes is a long time to really get to understand them. So the fast crops have really taught me a lot about business, about consistency, uh, and, and also efficiencies that come with it. And, you know, sometimes, I've said before, but sometimes uh, it's a little game changer of a thing. is stupidly simple, but you, you've got to do it 10,000 times to realise, oh, we can just switch this around and do it that way, and, man, that makes a difference. So, yeah, kind of always working on, the lean principles and how, how we can make things better, but also trying to just enjoy the farming, how it is now. It's, a, it's forever changing. What are the steps you, that there are to take? Let's say some farmers are listening who can see an opportunity to diversify their income streams with perhaps as young children. They want to do their own thing. Is it hard to get compliant? Firstly, I, I, I really believe a market garden of this scale belongs on a farm. You know, in Taranaki, every second dairy farm could have a half-acre market garden, a a stacked enterprise, access to land for young people. All of that stuff becomes much more achievable. Depends on where your supply is. Uh, We're registered with NP1, which is um, overseen by your regional council or your local council. And that is all about about the Food Act and it's about safe, clean food. The big things on there are clean water, water tests, potable water, calibrated scales, and they come and audit and look at your systems. And, you know, that's really like in a wash and pack where nothing, everything's on wheels, nothing touches the ground. It's super easy to clean. There's no um, heat uh, able to get onto our crops to begin, you know, perishing. And then we've got our systems in place, our standard operating procedures. Anyone that comes to work has to be signed off on those. One, so that the food is clean and safe, but also two, that so that they are, so that they they keep themselves safe. You know, like the the greens harvester and the tilter, 
nobody's allowed to use those until we've orientated them on them and, and okayed them that they're safe and they sign that off. So that's, I think every two years with your council, if you're supplying supermarket, you need, and it's probably cost you 600 bucks. If you're supplying supermarket, you need GAP registration, which is global. It stands for good agricultural practice. Um, they audit you every year for the first three years. And then I think it's every three years. That's about $1,300. Very similar. They want to know that you understand where the fire extinguisher is and where the first aid kit is. And people have signed off on SOPs along with, you know, the clean water and, and that you know your systems. You know, we do a deep clean before any of those people turn up. But yeah, we got we got through both those systems. Um, it's, it is totally achievable. Yeah, even at small scale, it's it's um, great. I want to wrap up with a question that I ask all of the guests on the Quorum Sense podcast. What would you have to say to anyone listening that's just pricking their ears up? You know, if you could take all of your experience and you were to start all over again, what you know, what would be the one thing you would say? I wish the answer was go to university and learn it all. Um, it's find find someone who's further down the track, give them your time, upskill and learn from their successes and failures. And that's been, you know, what, what I've really enjoyed about traveling is just seeing so much production, learning from others and just start. I'm going to move to the country one day. I'm going to do this one day. You, you just got to make, take that first step. Get some input early on. Get before you, even before you choose your site get support with that, get support with your design. Yeah, get yourself, you know, uh, familiar with it and and also probably the cheapest education with the market gardening. Uh, we, we run a pretty intensive two-day event. I, I guess I, I do recommend that, but the, the cheapest education is actually the, the market garden books. Uh, Jean-Martin Fortier, the market gardener, Curtis Stone, the urban farmer, Elliot Coleman, Four Season Farm, He's the godfather of market gardening and he's like 85 in Maine. He, he's the, the guru of season extension and he invented all the modern tools. Ben Hartman has applied Toyota Manufacturing's Lean Principles to the market garden. He's got two books as well called The Lean Farm. Those books are 30 bucks each. For 300 bucks, you've got yourself a library. And if you've read them, well, you need to read them every season because as you begin building your experience, you'll gain more out of, out of those books as well. I wish I could say there's a ton more of literature with the market garden movement. There are online courses and there's a lot of good growers around doing some time on, on a farm of similar production that you see yourself in is a super invaluable way. And that's how we've developed our farm. We're a combo of the different styles of farms that have worked on around the world. And um, we don't need more robot farms. Every farm is totally individual and unique but we do need more small-scale farms producing local food into local markets is there any possibility of you adding to the literature jody i can you've got a lot of information and a wealth of experience and knowledge is that something you can see yourself doing perhaps in the future i guess it's not going to be in a hurry but yeah so we're the with our business, we, um, we've always done education and that's been great for us. It's just We just paused it with COVID, but we're going to take that online. That's a long-term plan. We'll probably, once we, t- once we build the online stuff, we'll probably, all, I'll, I'll look at a book. I'm probably three years away, something like that. Also podcasts, and I might send you our market garden notes so you can add some notes to this podcast, but the, there's a lot of good podcasts out there and there's a lot of, a lot of farmers that do a ton of content and some, some of them aren't necessarily farming full-time anymore because they're making content 
Farm Small, Farm Smart. That's run by Diego Futter. He's also got a grazing channel. No Till Growers, they've got a podcast. Chris Blanchard, the late Chris Blanchard, he's got a podcast called Farmer to Farmer. So there's a lot of content on there on the market, on the, in the market garden space as well. It's just your investment to spend the time to you know, listen to it at night. Well, Jody, thank you so much for your time this morning on Easter Sunday. I know there's plenty of other things you could have been doing. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll get a surf in tonight. And no, <laughs> thanks, Jono, and really appreciate the work that Quorum Sense do. Um, my last trip away before the first COVID was down to Christchurch, where I saw you speak at the Organic Pastoral Dairy Regenerative Agriculture Meetup. Shout out to Quorum Sense and all the farmers that I met down there on that trip, too. Um, I you saw me like, cartwheel in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it Jimmy Barnes? Yeah, man, got the Jimmy on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's the other thing I didn't mention. We've got a massive speaker system here in the Valley. We Music gets us through the week. We uh, we love Spotify and our workers have all got, you know, access to it. We just blast music. Uh, no complaints from our neighbouring. Mate, to- I was already wanting to come and work for you up, up at your place already enough and you'd throw that into the mix. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to blast. I've got to go. I'm going to blast some Jimmy Barnes. <laughs> All right, mate. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome, Jono. Take care. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions, and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense Podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.